Well, Jack, you know, the juxtaposition of Obama's re-election and the year of the snake is just too easy. I'm just not going <laughs> to. Jack wanted to know if I was going to give a response to uh, Obama's State of the Union this evening or his misstate of the Union. And I said, well, since he hasn't given it yet and I'm not a prophet, we'll have to, we'll have to wait. Okay, in terms of announcements, the uh, April 13th is the date of the uh, garage sale for Camp Arete. Part of the funds are going to be used for transportation, and there, that's quite a deal. You know, I don't know how many went from how many went from Houston last year. Seventeen went from Houston last year, and I bet that's going to be 30 or 40 this year, so you're going to have to rent a lot of vans. Okay, uh, so reminder of the congregational meeting this Sunday, immediately following the morning worship service after about a five-minute break, and then also signing up to help for the uh, Chafer Conference, and there will be a, there's a sign-up sheet back in the, back in the fellowship hall. And for those who wish to register for the conference, the <clears throat> sign-up is on the conference website, HoustonBibleConferences.org, HoustonBibleConferences.org, and the topic is going to be priorities in ministry, focusing on what are the, biblically speaking, what are the priorities in the local church ministry, and our keynote speaker is Scott Annual, who's teaching at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And his background is in music, and so we're going to be looking at a lot of things related to music. But one of the things I've asked him to do for the pastors and for a lot of church leaders, because a lot of pastors have smaller churches, smaller congregations. Some congregations are musically challenged, and so these pastors really struggle. And so he's going to be also addressing some of the practical things that pastors of smaller congregations can do to improve and develop uh, the music that they have in their in their congregations, and may in some cases uh, have some suggestions for some pastors who need to learn some things about how to even lead music. That's um, just some of the things that ha- happen many times. I mean, there've been times here when Alan has been gone and I've led music. Now, of course, I also, Alan, a lot of people don't know, Alan was a band director at one time, and I was in band and had to learn all of that back in high school, and that's just part of the repertoire that any pastor should have because of uh, just the uh, necessities of the of the ministry. So this is going to be a great conference, uh, talking about various other aspects as well. So priorities in ministry. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give each one an opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship ready to study the Word, making sure that our uh, walk by the Spirit is engaged and we can move forward in our spiritual growth. Let's bow our heads together go to the Lord in prayer.
Father, we know that there's nothing wrong with the state of this nation that a return to biblical values and biblical truth wouldn't fix completely. A recognition of individual responsibility as opposed to national responsibility, reduction in spending so that we are not living on the basis of debt, a concept clearly uh, rejected by the Scripture, uh, focusing on uh, biblical absolutes in terms of ethics, recognizing that uh, the only way to and the only path to real blessing in life is walking in obedience to you. Failure to do that will continue to put us in a sp- declining spiral into national self-destruction. And unless there is a change, what the Bible refers to as turning or repentance, refocusing upon you and getting our eyes off the idolatry of self, the idolatry of materialism, and the idolatry of, of uh, worship of national government, until uh, that changes, there can be no real hope. But, Father, we do have a hope that is eternal, a hope that is grounded in the reality and truth of your word, and a hope that is grounded in Jesus Christ, the promised, predicted Messiah of the Old Testament, who came to the earth, died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and on the third day rose from the dead to demonstrate your acceptance of him. And then he was he ascended into heaven to sit at your right hand, awaiting the end of the age when he will return in triumph and defeat the forces of evil. And so, Father, we know that we have a mission right now as representatives of your kingdom and that we are in training right now in Bible class, preparing ourselves to live lives as ambassadors for Christ and as witnesses before man and the angels. And we pray that we might be faithful in that mission. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, where we are studying Paul's message to the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. It was in that context that Paul, the first time we see Paul uh, truly uh, proclaim the gospel. He's proclaiming the gospel to uh, this synagogue, and he approaches the gospel in a way that is quite different from the way we see him approach it or will see him approach it later on in the next chapter as he addresses a Gentile congregation because he knows that the Gentiles have no frame of reference in terms of who Jesus is, in terms of who God is. They don't really understand what sin is, and they don't understand uh, the, the foundational doctrines of the Old Testament. But a Jewish audience in the first century would understand that because of their background in the Torah. And so he is coming to uh, present the case that Jesus Christ has solved the problem of sin as predicted in the Old Testament, solving the problem of sin, and has come to give righteousness to his people that they might be justified. This is a theme that runs all the way through the scriptures in the Old Testament, and it's very instructive to be able to trace this theme related to tzedakah, to righteousness in the Old Testament. We saw in our previous uh, lessons in this uh, in this chapter 
that Paul is said, uh, begins by saying, we declare to you glad tidings. We could translate that. We proclaim to you the good news. We proclaim the gospel. Gospel means good news. It's from the Greek word evangelizo, which is where we get our word evangelism. And he is doing evangelism here. So if we want to learn how to do evangelism, this is one of the ways we do this, is to look at the content of these messages. There are two words that are used in the New Testament for preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. One is evangelizo, which means to, to simply announce good news. If you break it down etymologically, the EU at the prefix, which in, in Greek with the U is usually pronounced like a V, that EU indicates something good. It, it, if you stick it at, at the beginning of a word, it means you're, you're, you're saying something, doing something positive, something good. It, we see it in an English word. When there is a funeral, someone g- makes a good statement or says some good words called a eulogy, U-E-U, and lagos, message, eulogy is a good word or a good message about the person. So it's the same kind of thing. Uh, evangelizo, angelos, it was, is the noun for messenger. Angelizo is the verb for making an announcement. You add the EU as a prefix, it's announcing good things. It's announcing the gospel. And so he's declaring this gospel as something that had been announced previously and related to the promise made to the fathers. That's a reference to uh, the patriarchs of Judaism. The Bible always relates it as only the patriarchs because the emphasis from Adam on in the Scripture is on the male as the head of the home and the seed uh, terminology emphasized from the very beginning of Genesis in Genesis 3.15, focusing on the Messiah, was to go through a male line. It's not a matter of prejudice. God's not putting down women. Um, women who feel slighted by that it just indicate that they have a, uh, a poor understanding of the themes of Scripture and why this is there. Uh, it is tracing that lineage down to the Messiah, who it was would would be a a man. Acts thirteen thirty three. God, Paul goes on to say, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that He has raised up Jesus. Now He uses even in English, you can pick this up. He's going to talk about raising up Jesus. This is talking about the resurrection, and included in it is all the way to the ascension, uh, where Christ is raised and His. The fact that he is the uniquely begotten one of the Father, uh, he's the Son of God, indicating he has full, full deity, uh, identical to the Father, that he's raised up, and then this is going to, Paul's going to use that raising up terminology in relation to what is said about David um, being raised up and make that connection there, showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic uh, covenant. Last time I looked at Psalm 110, uh, Psalm 110, and I want to go back to that briefly because of a question that, that Diesel had asked there at the end, and I hadn't really caught some of the significance of that, but since it's in that passage, I thought I would go back and just uh, just take a swipe at it real quick before we move on. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm, closely connected in its theme to Psalm 2. 
In both of these psalms, there's the representation of the Messiah. The Messiah is in a place where he is waiting to be given the kingdom. This is the picture that we have here. Now, it's filled out in Daniel chapter 7. Again, another Old Testament book. It's filled out in Daniel chapter 7 where where the Messiah is referred to as the Son of Man. And he is waiting for the Ancient of Days, God the Father. He's waiting for the Ancient of Days to give him the kingdom. And when the Father, when the Ancient of Days gives uh, the Messiah, the, the Son of Man, the kingdom, that's when he comes and defeats the armies of man. So it is something that is predicted of a future time where there will be this massive military conflict on the earth between the armies of the Son of Man, the Messiah, that will come to the earth and defeat the armies of of God. Now, there's a post-millennial heresy that developed out of the charismatic movement back in the, really developed back in the 40s, and it's the idea that that the church, see, in post-millennialism, Jesus doesn't come back until the end of the millennium, the end, end of the kingdom. The kingdom is brought in by the church, and the Holy Spirit works through the church to bring in the kingdom. And so they, there was, they're developed in the healing movements coming out of the 1940s and 1950s, a lot of bad hermeneutics where they were interpreting these army and battle metaphors as this battle between the church and the pagans in the world today. And so they, through allegorization, they were taking various passages, passages related to the army and Joel. So sometimes it's referred to as Joel's army. And then they, then they would just, uh, what I sort of call Rorschach exegesis, you know, a Rorschach test. Those are the ink blot tests. You just look at an ink blot and what does it look like? And you just, whatever comes to your mind, that's what you say. Something looks familiar here, sounds like something over there. Ah, it must be the same thing. So they combine them. And that's a lot of the kind of thing that they had uh, uh, go, going on. But that's one of the verses that they would go to in... Um, in, in uh, supporting their view is here in the um, uh, Psalm 110, the idea of this battle uh, that's coming coming forth. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion to rule in the midst of your enemies. And then verse 3, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. And so that's the call to volunteer for this militant army, the the, the army of Joel. And that this is not what the text is talking about. It's talking about the fact that when you put it together, contextually with other passages that talk about the same situation, that the Lord, one divine person, says to my Lord, the only other Lord that would be superior to David would be another divine person, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the position of the second Lord is one of passivity, not militancy, during the time preceding his being given the kingdom. And then when he is, the kingdom comes only when it's given to him, not in this gradual uh, process that, that comes along um, in, in post-millennialism. Now, to, to show you why understanding these things is relevant to our lives, if you remember, there was a lot of uh, to do about uh, two years ago in August. Uh, there was a 
day of prayer declared in Texas. Rick Perry made a uh, big deal about that, and he was being influenced by some people with the, I think it was with the American Family Association and some other groups that were heading up the organization for this. And all of those people were coming out of post-millennial uh, dominion theology. They were into all of this Lord's army and, and naming and claiming all of this stuff for the Lord. And it's just the nastiest, gnarliest pit of, of bad theology you can imagine. But see, governors usually need to keep their uh, keep their opinions about theology to themselves because they don't know enough. And when they, they come under influence of what what they think are just good Christians, but they don't realize the theological agenda and nuances that are going on. And that cre- did create some problems uh, that were going on and reported in the press and things of that nature. And it, may, it makes it sound like some things are that he wanted to do some things imposing Christianity on people. Well, that's what this fringe element wants to do. Now, there's a lot more that goes along with this. One of the major players in this um, was a guy by the name of C. Peter Wagner. Peter Wagner uh, was, uh, I don't know if he still is, but he's now uh, considered one of the foremost spokesmen for this kind of, this group. He used to be the head of the missions department at um, Fuller Theological Seminary back in the 60s and 70s, and he is considered the father of the church growth movement. And two of his great disciples are um, Rick Warren, who's out at the um, uh, Southern California, who has the purpose-driven church. It's not the Christ-driven or the Holy Spirit-driven church. It's the purpose-driven church. Uh, There's a book written by the brother of Chuck Smith, Paul Smith, on the uh, new evangelical spirituality that traces a lot of this stuff. And sometimes it's just amazing you don't know what's going on. This isn't conspiracy theory stuff. It's just showing that that there are influences as Fuller Seminary really went off the rails in the 60s because they rejected the inspiration of, of Scripture. They started getting into more and more of this kind of thing. And, and there was Peter Wagner, and then another guy that came along was a guy named John Wimber. And John Wimber uh, came out of a Quaker background, became part of the Calvary Chapel movement, and then uh, he initially wasn't sure about tongues, but he had um, he was they were having a church service one night, and they had this this guy who had formerly been involved with Calvary Chapel and was one of the three men who sort of influenced in starting the whole Jesus movement back out of Haight Asbury and Berkeley back in the late sixties by the name of um, Lonnie Frisbee. And Lonnie Frisbee was a weird character. He eventually got re- arrested for uh, <clears throat> for propositioning a male undercover police officer in a city park in uh, Los Angeles and died of AIDS about 10 years ago. Uh, and But at that, that part of his life was pretty much hidden in the... Uh, uh, in the early or mid late seventies, and he came out and he just called the Holy Spirit down on this unsuspecting congregation that John Wimber had, and everybody fell on the ground. It was just that's the report that they had. I don't know that all of that is true. It's probably exaggerated because I've heard. I, I was doing a lot of doctoral research for my doctorate on this group back in the eighties, 
And, and it was out of that whole power evangelism, John Wimber, Signs and Wonders, Third Wave of the Holy Spirit movement that this other stuff with the rise of the uh, five offices of the church and you know, new institution of apostles and prophets and all of this came about. It's just an absolute just just a, a, a just a spider web of, of horrible doctrines and theologies. And so uh, Diesel knew a little bit about that and so he wanted to he had asked that question because he wanted me to address it. So now I've addressed that. But it, it has nothing to do with the context. It's talking about the Lord when he comes with his saints as depicted in Revelation nineteen, uh, that is the raptured, resurrected rewarded church age believers who come with him at the end of the tribulation to defeat the antichrist the false prophet and the the uh, armies of the kings of the earth and that's the picture you get and the term theme that we looked at was just the various a uh, mistranslation there in psalm 110 verse 3 that throws off the uh, messianic interpretation and i pointed that out last time that you have these two words here. In Hebrew, you have only consonants in the original Hebrew text as written by by David. Okay, He only wrote consonants. That's all they had. The vowels were not inserted. Vowels did not develop within the alphabets, written alphabet of, of the Jews until after the destruction of the second temple. So if you're reading Hebrew, uh, it was un- unpointed. That the vowels are called points. So vowel points would indicate how these words were to be pronounced. And a group of scribes were responsible, developed a- during the early part of this age, and were responsible for overseeing the preservation and transmission of the Hebrew scriptures. And they were called the Masoretes. Now, they developed some ways to write the vowels into words in order to preserve the pronunciation of the words so that if the language were lost or the speaking of it were lost, then it would be preserved by these, by these vowel points. But like, just like in English, I use the example of the word here, H-E-A-R, and the word here, H-E-R-E, if you just write those words as consonants, they, they're the same, H-R. But H-E-R-E and H-E-A-R have completely different meanings. So the Masoretes, and there are other examples we can go to, have, uh, it's been demonstrated that there were in Messianic prophecy sections there was a manipulation of the text, not by changing the consonants, but by changing the vowels. By changing the vowels um, from this word on the right, yelitika, to the vowels on the left, it changes the, ver- the word itself to a different meaning. And if it is the word on the right, that word is not in the uh, Masoretic text of the Hebrew uh, scriptures, but that is obviously the the word that is translated into the Septuagint. The Septuagint was translated before Christ, so it represents a, a, what it represents in its Greek translation is a Hebrew original 
that was uh, that is different in places from the Masoretic text that we use that we know of simply because of some of these types of changes. And so I pointed this out last time that in that this Psalm 110 verse 3, instead of translating it in the beauties of holiness uh, from the womb of the morning, uh, you have the dew of your youth, that this would be translated uh, to indicate that uh, that Christ was that it would be in the beauties of holiness from the um, I believe it was from the beginning I don't have the notes that I wrote on that um, before me but it was it, it had something to do with from the um, uh, from the time of your begottenness uh, you have the dew of your youth or the dew of the beginning which indicates that it that the, the begotten one was eternal. And so that word then, Yelitka, is a, tied over to the birth, the begottenness of the Son in Psalm 2-7. Now that connection is what I was pointing out last time. This is behind, Paul doesn't quote Psalm 110 in Acts 13, but that's an important thing to understand is that this idea of begotten from Yalad, which means to, uh, to get, the, the verb means to give birth, uh, it means to be begotten. If you're in um, in modern in Hebrew, in uh, Israel today, and you uh, see a bunch of kids there, uh, if you see an individual young boy, he's a he's a yelled. If it's a young girl, it's a yelledah. If you see a bunch of kids, they're yelledim. So Y L D is the the verb is means to give birth, and the um, how you structure that as a noun indicates whether it's a male child, a female child, or just a bunch of children. Uh, but it has that idea also of begottenness, which is different from being created or being made, uh, which, as I pointed out, was the terminology defined, uh, refined rather, in the Nicene Creed that Jesus was the second person of the Trinity was begotten but not made emphasizing his eternality because as the son of God, he has this, shares the same divine essence as God. So that reviews us a little bit on where we were last time. And in Acts chapter 13, and turn back to Acts 13, we'll go back to the Psalms in just a minute, but you, so you ought to keep your place in Acts, Acts 13 so we don't lose it. In Acts 13... Jesus is, I mean, uh, Paul is weaving together these these Old Testament passages and prophecies, and and showing how the Old Testament predicted someone greater than David, who would be resurrected and raised up, and would be the future ruler of uh, of the kingdom. And so this is how he's tying this together. He talks about the um, Messiah as the Lord in Psalm 110.1, who's the begotten one, who will be raised, who's waiting for the, being given the kingdom. Psalm 2 focuses on the conflict between God's anointed in Psalm 2.2 uh, and the kings of the earth. And now he's going to shift this to talking about the Davidic covenant in Acts 13.34. 
He's established the the Messiah as the begotten one, the eternal uh, and having eternity, eternal deity. And then in verse thirty four, he says, "And that he uh, raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption." Now that's an important word because the idea of corruption there indicates the normal process of decay in the physical body after death as it returns to dust. So he was raised from the dead, no more to return to corruption. And then he quotes from uh, from Psalm, oh, excuse me, from Isaiah 55, 3. And, con- and then he will connect that to Psalm 16, 10. Now, he says there that he says, I will give you the sure mercies of David. So let's keep a place here. We have to go to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. These are really some good, good verses to understand and to see how these connect to understanding the messianic credentials of Jesus. Now, Isaiah chapter 55 is focusing on uh, a message, again, of judgment upon unbelieving Israel, but that there's also the opportunity for redemption, for salvation. God constantly offers forgiveness and redemption to his people. He, he, as long as they're alive, as long as you're alive, there's always the opportunity for things to change. And so in verse 1, we read how everyone who thirsts come to the waters. And you who have no money, see, you have nothing. We have nothing to bring to God. We have nothing to bring to salvation. We cannot be good enough because we are, we are corrupt uh, inherently. You who have no money, come buy and eat. But if we don't have any money, how can we buy? Because it's given freely. The food, the water, God is the one who freely supplies to us. Yes, Isaiah says, come by wine and milk without money and without price. See, that's what grace is. Grace does not assign a cost to salvation. It's given as a free gift. Does that mean it's free? No. There, it had to be, there, a purchase price had to be paid. That purchase price was the death of the Messiah. And it was when the Messiah died that he paid that price, that penalty for sin. But because it was paid by someone else, it is free to us. Isaiah goes on to say, Why do you spend money for what is not bread? In other words, why are you spending your effort? Why are you going out and performing good deeds and righteous deeds and all of this ritual to get something that doesn't provide nourishment for you? Because it's, it, it's, it's false. It's emptiness. It might make you feel good. It might give you the trappings of life, but it doesn't give you life. It's not real bread. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live. So that's the invitation. Listen to God and you will have life. Your soul will live. 
And then he says, and I, and this is really showing the result. If you come to God and you turn back to him, going back to the message of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1 and 2, that Israel needs to turn to God, uh, turn from their idolatry and turn to God. Uh, God says, and then, and it's the idea of then I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Everlasting covenant with you, an olaberit. It's a never, not, it's an unconditional, unending covenant, permanent covenant. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. And there's an interesting, uh, facet to this in the Hebrew because he uses the word chesed to indicate it's, it's the faithfulness of God and the, the grace of God. And he uses, uh, this to emphasize the certainty of fulfilling the everlasting covenant that God made with David. So let's just review this part of it briefly. The Davidic covenant is covered in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 to 14, which in that passage, it emphasizes David's immediate descendant, his human son, Solomon. Uh, Psalm 89 is a meditation upon the Davidic covenant and God's faithfulness to David. And then 1 Chronicles 17, 10 through 14, gives us a different perspective on the same event when God gives the covenant to, to uh, David. It's the same event as 2 Samuel eleven fourteen, but it's slightly different. The emphasis in 2 Samuel is on the human descent through Solomon, First Chronicles seventeen ten through fourteen emphasizes the ultimate, the one who will ultimately fulfill the covenant, the the deity, the divine side of the one who fulfills that covenant. Now, when we look at this covenant in Second Samuel and in First Chronicles seventeen, Second Samuel seven eleven to fourteen, First Chronicles seventeen ten to fourteen, there's two people involved in making this covenant. There's God on the one hand. And David, on the other hand, David stands as a representative of all of his descendants. And God is making, entering into this as a one-sided or unilateral covenant. God is binding himself just as he did with Abraham, just as he did with Israel in the uh, land covenant and, uh, and in the uh, new covenant, in the Davidic covenant. He's binding himself, not David. No conditions are being placed on David. The conditions, the, uh, the control is all upon God. It's unilateral. And God is granting this to David. Now, this is elaborating on the seed promise that was made to, uh, to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. There were three parts to that, land, seed, and blessing. The land related to the real estate for Israel, the seed related to uh, the number of descendants of Israel, ultimately the focus on the Messiah. And then the blessing is that they were to be a worldwide blessing. Now, the sad part today is that that this, this worldwide blessing aspect uh, for Israel is, um, uh, is often spoken of under the guise of a phrase called tikkun olam within Judaism. And this has become the... Uh, sort of the prime directive, uh, you might say, for all um, uh, for all Jews, and it's nothing more than 
than social activism and social justice, words that are basically code words for socialism and communism. And it's been twisted that way. The way to be a blessing to the world is to take from the rich and give to the poor, do good deeds and things uh, things of that nature. And so Tikkun Olam has been taken completely out of context in modern Judaism as a, as a mandate for social justice. And this answers a question some people say, of how, why is it that, that in the light of the fact that we have a, a, a Muslim sympath, sympathizer in the White House, someone who is uh, anti-Israel, but he's forced by the exigencies, I think, of his political situation to at least act pro-Israel, and uh, why it is that, that a vast majority of uh, Jews in the United States can't see through this, and that is because they have sold their souls to social justice and socialism, and because of that, they can't see uh, reality. They want somebody uh, who's going to uh, make these uh, social equities come into place from the top down rather than from the bottom up, and it becomes an, and it has become another form of idolatry. And I had a friend, uh, uh, spent some time the other day with a good friend of mine who is a lawyer here in town who's Jewish who was just railing about this and, he, and why they never seem to understand anything. He had read a book I had recommended for him. Uh, it's out of print called uh, a, a Match Made in Heaven, written by Zev Chafetz, who has is originally from Detroit, uh, made Aliyah to Israel back during the... Uh, 67 war and had became uh, a uh, uh, had involvements with the press and other things in uh, Menachem Begin's uh, uh, government back in the early 80s and most recently is known be of writing the authorized biography of Rush Limbaugh uh, an army of one Hafitz is a hu- humorous amusing light-hearted writer he's great but his book a match made in heaven is is designed to show why Israel needs the support of American evangelicals. And it's very insightful for evangelicals to read this book. And for Jews, too, you find out a lot of things that you didn't know. One of the things that I appreciated, he had a chapter called Jews are, are Republicans, is, uh, I'm, excuse me, Israelis are Republicans, Jews are Democrats. And uh, Israelis, because they live in a, under a constant existential threat, are fo- forced to face reality. That doesn't mean they're all conservative. That doesn't mean there aren't liberals there. I've met several who want to give all of the uh, territory in Samaria and Judea back to people who never had a right to it to begin with because of their guilt. But um, uh, anyway, that's that's part of all of this. But that's an insightful book and. Uh, my friend was talking about how how great it was and how much he learned. And he said, and, and one of the points that Kafitz made was that uh, Jews are so committed to social justice that 40% of the Jewish community in America would rather vote for a president, even if they knew that his election would lead to the destruction of the modern state of Israel. But as long as it preserved the right to abortion then it would be better to preserve that right and to sacrifice everything on that idolatrous altar than to preserve the existence of the modern state of Israel. 
And a lot of people just are blown away by that. But but you got to understand that in the Jewish community, they're mostly agnostic or atheist, and they have no interest whatsoever in their biblical heritage or an understanding of it because they've been influenced by this works uh, righteousness idea. So anyway, back to the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant recognizes that man can't do it, and God is going to provide an eternal descendant that will do it. And this is seen in the fact there's a promise of an eternal house or dynasty to David. There's the promise of an eternal kingdom to David and the promise of an eternal throne to David. And only someone who has the attribute of eternality can fulfill those aspects of the covenant. A normal human being can't do it. So there's the, the strong indication here that the one who fulfills this in the line of David is not only going to be of the lineage of David, but is going to have to also be divine and possess uh, eternality as their uh, one of their attributes. Isaiah 53, uh, 55, 3 uh, is the original of this verse. Uh, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. So this, what what is... Uh, being said here is when Israel, when the Jewish people have inclined their ear and come to God and turned away from the idolatry of socialism, turned away from the idolatry of atheism and agnosticism and materialism and all of the other isms, when they have turned back to God, Deuteronomy 31 through 3, then God will restore them to the land. This is a restoration uh, passage. And God says, it will be at that time that I will make this everlasting covenant with you. It's been made with David, but this is when it is uh, activated. And then we have other passages that relate to this, sort of such as Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. There are these passages that refer to Jesse. Jesse was David's father. They refer to the stump or the uh, uh, of Jesse, which is the tree or the house of David has been chopped down, and all that's left is a stump. And then out of the stump comes a root. Out of the stump comes a, a, a rather a branch, and that branch is the Messiah is used to represent that. So Jeremiah twenty three five and six talks about this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David. A branch of righteousness. Now, I want you to watch that word righteousness because this is a major thing. The, in, in, in Judaism, there's an emphasis on righteousness, on tzedakah. But we have to understand how the Bible presents righteousness. And so as I go through this, we're going to remember those songs in the cartoons when you were a kid and sitting in front of the television and you'd follow the bouncing ball. Well, righteousness is the bouncing ball, and we have to trace this through the Old Testament. Uh, God is going to raise to David a branch, a righteous branch, the focused attribute of the branch, who's a descendant of David, is this perfect righteousness. He is a king who will reign and prosper, and he will execute judgment and righteousness seen as, in the way that it's grammatically these are seen as two sides of the same coin. He, and only because he is righteous, will his judgment or his rule be righteous. So he, his rule will be uh, characterized by righteousness. 
in his days, verse 6, in his day Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now that hasn't happened at the time of Jeremiah. When does Jeremiah write? He writes about five, in the 590s, 590 years before Christ. The northern kingdom of Israel doesn't dwell safely, doesn't dwell at all. It was destroyed uh, 130 years earlier by the Assyrians. So there's no northern kingdom of Israel at all at the time Jeremiah is writing this. Judah at the time that is, is under the heel of the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. They've already been militarily defeated in 605. They're defeated again in uh, in, in the five uh, in 596, and they're going to be, or I think it was 595, and then in uh, 486, I mean 586, they're going to be uh, destroyed. The first temple is going to be destroyed, and they're going to be completely defeated by Nebuchadnezzar. So what this is is a prediction that even though everything is falling apart right now, the economy's collapsing, militarily we're, we're being defeated, uh, everything is, is in a state of chaos, there's a future hope. And this future hope is in this future branch of righteousness. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. So once again, it, it, it's indicating for, for Judah to be saved and Israel to dwell safely, there has to be a restoration to the land. That hasn't happened yet. It is ha- I think it is happening now. The restoration has been going on for the last hundred years. Is the beginning of this restoration. There are now as many Jews living in Israel as outside of Israel for the first time since 586. You have, uh, you have more Jews living in Israel than outside the land. Uh, at the time of the first century, you just had a, a, a small percentage of Jews living in the land. You still had major Jewish populations in Alexandria, in Egypt, and all through uh, Turkey, all through uh, what is now Turkey, Asia Minor, and Babylon, but uh, it wasn't just in uh, uh, Judea. Now, the name by which the Messiah will be known, this uh, branch, is the Lord our Righteousness. Again, indicating that it is the righteousness of this descendant of David who his righteousness becomes our righteousness. Now we're going to go 10 chapters later in Jeremiah, and I'm just going to hit a couple of high points. This is a long passage from Jeremiah 33.14 down to 33.22. When I go through these, I encourage you to make notes. Daisy chain in the upper margin uh, Jeremiah, uh, over Jeremiah 23, uh, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Make a note. Look at Jeremiah 33 and, uh, and following. In Jeremiah 33, 14, we have another prediction about, uh, the branch. Behold, the days are coming since the Lord. So this is written about just before the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. So the days are coming. This is in the future that I will perform that good thing which I promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. So it's the fulfillment of all these prophecies and promises God had made to the fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and uh, to others down through the centuries. He says, in those days, this is verse 15, In those days and at that time, so this is talking about this future time of a restoration. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. There we pick up that 
same imagery again. He shall execute judgments and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem uh, will dwell safely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. It's almost a direct quote from, Je- from Jeremiah 23. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. So there will be a restoration of the Davidic monarchy. Then in verse 18, nor shall the priests of the Levites lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me to kindle grain offerings and to sacrifice continually. So again, there's an indication here that there will be a restoration of the temple in order to have have these sacrifices. There has to be a restoration of the temple and there has to be a uh, restoration of the priesthood for these sacrifices. Now, these are not sacrifices related to salvation. Those were fulfilled at the cross, and they're not repeated. These are sacrifices related to praise, sacrifices related to thanksgiving, sacrifices related to ritual cleansing, which will be necessary for entry into the uh, millennial temple. Starting in verse 19, And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be any day or night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on the throne and with the Levites, the priests, and ministers. In other words, he's, he's saying, if you can get night and day to stop, then this covenant would, is broken. But you can't get night and day to stop, so this covenant's never going to be broken. It is a permanent, everlasting uh, covenant. Verse 22, As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. Moreover, verse 23, no, i just stop there. But that emphasizes the fact that David my servant, uh, there will be a branch from the descendants who will be the one who rules. Now we get, skip over to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37, verse 24. So we've gone from Isaiah to Jeremiah and now to Ezekiel. Ezekiel is writing in Babylon. Ezekiel is writing at roughly the same time as Jeremiah. Ezekiel was taken captive in the first group of, uh, of uh, deportees back in, uh, or, 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 I think I misspoke, in the second group of de- deportees in the 590s uh, to Babylon. And he is uh, ministering to the, to the Jews in, in Babylon. And in Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, verses 24 and following, he says, David, my servant, shall be king over them. So this is a prophecy that David is going to be raised up over Israel. They shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I've given to Jacob, my servant. So this is a, prom- a prophecy of a future restoration of uh, Israel and Judah to the land. Uh, this is the same land where your fathers dwelt. They will dwell there. They, they, their children, and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. And note the language here. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. So the covenant of peace here, I believe, is another term for the new covenant. But the new covenant here is tied to the covenant, the fulfillment of the covenant with David. So we have these two covenants 
the fulfillment of which takes place only when the Messiah comes and establishes his his um, kingdom in the future. In Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 27, there's a lament over uh, of the fall of Jerusalem, overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown, it shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is. Until he comes whose right it is, and this is a reference to the Messiah. And then God says, then I will give it to him. Uh, Ezekiel thirty-four twenty-three says, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, when it comes to the language here, there are some who think that this is referring to, to the Messiah as the descendant of David and just referring to him as David. There's another view, and that is that David, in his resurrection with the Old Testament saints, will be given the rulership over Israel in the millennial kingdom. The Messiah rules over the whole earth. I think that is the more accurate view, that Jesus is the Messiah, reigns over the whole earth. David reigns over uh, Israel and over, over Jerusalem. Now, we go from there, a couple of other passages I want to hit. Um, Hosea 3, 4, and 5, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince. This is a reference to the period now when they are all uh, basically out of the land under divine discipline. Uh, They'll abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillow, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, so after that period when they're out of the land, the children of Israel shall return... That's our restoration emphasis. And seek the Lord their God and David their king. First they return, then they will seek the Lord and David their king. So there's an initial return in apostasy and a return in unbelief. Then there will be uh, the period known as the time of uh, Daniel's 70th week, sometimes referred to as the tribulation, uh, sometimes referred to as the time of Jacob's wrath. And this ends when the Messiah comes back and rescues Israel from being destroyed uh, by the Antichrist. So that is when they turn to God is just before the end of that period, just prior to self-destruction. And then they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Another passage, Jeremiah 30, verses 8 and 9, for it shall come to pass in that day. And when you read this in the Proverbs, in the prophets, that day usually refers to the day of the Lord, which is a reference to this end time, last days period of the return of the Messiah, preceded by the judgments that must come upon uh, mankind for their unbelief. Uh, Jeremiah 30, verse 8, for it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck, and I will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Another passage, Psalm 132.12 and 132.17. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I will teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever, referring to the Davidic promise. Psalm 132.17, there I will make the horn of David. That refers to the power and the prestige of the house of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for who? For my anointed. Mashiach in the Hebrew is the word anointed 
which is Christos uh, in the uh, in the Greek. And then Psalm 189, which is a long psalm, also references this, his seed, meaning David's seed, also I will make to endure forever, and his throne is the days of heaven. Remember, it's an everlasting covenant. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Okay, so that takes us through David. And this, the fact that, that the sure mercies of David are going to be um, uh, visited upon Israel. Now, what's interesting in the Greek is you have a word that's used in reference for this, the sure mercies. It's really the, the holy, holy mercies. It's hasias. It's like hagias, which is the Greek word normally translated holy, but it, it has the same idea. It's more of a personal holiness. It's the hasias, and this is used by Paul to, re, to segue into the next psalm that he's going to quote, Psalm 1610, uh, where it says, you, therefore it also says in another psalm, you will not allow your hasias one in the Septuagint. Didn't use hagias, use hasias, your hasias one to see corruption. Now, that raises up the whole issue of Psalm 1610, which we've never studied before, and we need to do this. This is a fascinating little study on 1610 because 1610 says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. This is David talking. David says, You're not going to abandon me. That's what the word leave means. It's a very strong word, and it means you're not going to desert me or abandon my soul in Sheol. Now, David David has the confidence that God's not going to abandon him in Sheol, but the language here is hyperbolic. It's extreme. It's exaggeration. And it, while it is true about David, because as a believer, he is not going to be abandoned by God, there will be a future restoration, but the hyperbolic language is only fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. So there is an immediate sense of our application of this to David, but the real application that comes under, uh, that Paul is able to make because of div- divinely inspired um, uh, application is that he applies this then to Jesus who will not undergo bodily corruption, staying in the grave. Uh, the, actually, the Hebrew word for corruption is the word pit. You're not going to allow me to stay in the pit. But the pit is the place where the body would decay. So it involves everything. Using the word pit involves everything that goes on with physical decay and corruption. And so uh, Paul then, under inspiration of Scripture uh, uh, and the Holy Spirit, takes this and applies it to the resurrection of Christ. And, And this is what he shows in verse 36 and following for David, after he'd served his own, own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried by his fathers, and saw corruption. He was buried in the grave, and his body deteriorated and decayed into dust. But that's not so, he then says, and applies that to to Jesus. So we'll come back and work through this last part next time. So anybody have any questions? Because we hit it again. Diesel. Yes.
Right. Yeah, see, see, uh, that whole prosperity theology and everything, it, it's post-millennial, essentially. Those are the verses they stand on. Are, are, is that? I didn't know that. The, the, that's, that's what they do, and they stand on that because they, they see the millennium is being brought in by the church, and they don't have a right understanding of the distinction between Israel and the church. And, and right, and God's, God's view, uh, God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. Okay, let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to focus upon your word and to be reminded that you have a plan to restore Israel to the land, which we believe is, is going on today, and you have a future plan uh, to redeem them as a nation and to restore them fully to the land as a redeemed people with David as their ruler and the Messiah as the ruler over all of mankind. Father, our role as church-age believers is to be faithful witnesses for you to everyone in our path, and we pray that as we continue to study uh, Acts 13 and Acts 14 that we might be better equipped and prepared to present the gospel and these issues to uh, those who need to hear them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.